Hello, welcome everyone to our third guest episode, fourth in general. Today we're gonna talk to our friend, actually a friend of me and Dmitri. Tina haven't met him before, so that's gonna be interesting. And without further ado, this is your phrase, Dmitri, and I was gonna use it. Without further ado, we're gonna introduce Lowry. Hi guys, good Hello. to be here with you all today. Hi Larry, good thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, so I don't know guys, as far as I know Larry the most, the best, uh, maybe you can start up with a warm-up question I'm gonna dive into a little bit later. Yeah, okay, Larry, just tell us a little, bit, a little bit about yourself. <laughs> I mean, the most general the question ever, just as broad as possible. Okay, as broad as possible. Cool. Yeah. yeah, so I'm 27. I'm from the UK originally, England specifically. Little small town in the middle. I've been living kind of internationally, being a quote-unquote expat as such, for nearly 10 years now, for the last kind of nine years. So I left the UK when I was 18, haven't been back. Well, I've been back quite a few times, but have never gone to live back there. So yeah, I lived in Spain for five years, lived in Barcelona specifically for that whole time. And then, you know, Netherlands for nearly four years now. So, yeah, I suppose I'm qualified as a expat as per the official classification. Sure. Do you want to talk about your line of business? What do you do for a living? Sure, yeah, 100%. So I work for a company called Synergy that runs an event called Enlit Europe, which is themed around renewable energy, the energy transition, specifically in Europe. So it's this big kind of three-day conference event that happens annually in a kind of different European capital city each time. But you know, this is it's quite a new job for me. I've been doing it for for about a year or so and really loving it, but I'm working specifically in sales okay. for, for this company, yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a great overview, but let's get back a little bit chronologically-wise. So can you tell us about the time of your life when you decided to leave UK? What were the reasons behind it? What did you escape um, at this early age? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because, you know, I'm coming, coming from a very small town, as I say, kind of, you know, I think it was kind of 20, 30,000 people. I was kind of undecided about what I would go to study. I thought that going to university at some point was, was for me, but I was kind of like, I just don't want to go and study something for the sake of it. You know, I want to make my mind up a little bit, kind of go on, quote unquote, gap year sort of thing. So... 10 years of a gap year? Yeah, it's still, still gapping. <laughs> still a gap decade. Gen Z of you. It's, it is. I'm not quite a, a Zoomer, fortunately for me. No offense to you guys if you, if you are, but I, I'm just on the millennial cutoff. 96, let's go. So, yeah, I don't know why I left in, in particular. I mean, kind of, it was kind of a weird political climate in the UK at the time. We had a kind of conservative government for the last, well, at that point, for kind of four or five years. Things were just kind of getting worse a little bit. And, you know, I just had liked Spain all my life. I'd been studying a bit of Spanish at school and kind of wanted to go to Spain specifically to kind of get a f some degree of fluency in Spanish to kind of just, yeah, try something, try something a little bit different. And yeah, I, I suppose, as I say, it wasn't really kind of due to a, like a dislike of the UK necessarily, but more of kind of just a, just to explore. Yeah, things, try something try new. Something new. 100%. As soon as I kind of was out of there, I was like, wow, man, this is a completely different world. Small town environment going to kind of the big city of Barcelona. It's such a huge 
city. Yeah, it's just very international. It's very kind of you know young city. It's very you know cosmopolitan. There's a lot of great things about it. So it was a big change. But yeah, very much a fan of mm-hmm. Spain. And what were you doing there in Barcelona? Everything and anything, my friend. A little bit of everything. So when I first got over there, I stayed in the cheapest hostel in Barcelona, a place called Graffiti Hostel, which I still hold in high regard. <laughs> kind of in the deep corner of the city. When I was there, I think on the second day of staying there, I went to the front desk and the, the manager was fortunately working there at the time. And I said, have you got a job for me? And he was like, you know what? I think I might. <laughs> so, so just wait there a second and I'll get back to you. So I went to go see him a couple of days later and he was like, I've got an opening on the reception, the night shift, midnight until 8 a.m. It's five, six days a week sort of thing. 500 euros a month, but you get a, you know, room. But 10 years ago, so. It's a, yeah, I mean, inflation, you know, and, <laughs> and the Spanish, you know, cost of living is a little bit lower, yeah. I would say. So it's here. Pretty, pretty good deal considering. I mean, even then I knew it was a shit deal, but it's still, <laughs> I just... Place to stay, that was kind of a big thing for me. And it was sharing a room with three ever sweaty guys, you know what I mean? And kind of, you know, less than stellar conditions. But it was somewhere for a roof over my head, a, a bit of a wage as well. So yeah, I kind of did that for about six months and had a lot of fun doing it. A lot of adventures as a kind of 18-year-old running the night shift at the cheapest <laughs> hostel in Barcelona. <laughs> A lot of people would just come up to me at the desk and ask me very interesting requests, but maybe that's a story for a different time. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, these times you didn't need to have a visa, right? No, I, I most certainly did not. It was just kind of show up at a country, still in the EU, get there and then just kind of, you know, I can do whatever I want, even without a job. Yeah. yeah Cause so. you left the place just at the right time. And for future biographists, we can conclude that Laurie Ray was interested in politics from the very young age. <laughs> that's, that's fair to say. Yeah, uh, I studied it. Yeah, for all the fans of Succession who've seen the last season, you they will appreciate it. That's like a hidden gem. Anyway, yeah, it's actually very, very cool details of 18-year-old you <laughs> just coming out of small town to the... One of the biggest cities in Europe, working at the cheapest hotel, hostel, sorry, in Europe. But I remember you were telling me about your side job, side gig, at Scursions on the Bites. Oh, yeah. That was, a couple of, that was a couple of years later. But yeah, I got up to kind of a few things. What really led to that was that I had worked very briefly for kind of a promotion nightclub sort of thing, where you'd go out and go and take, take tourists on a bar crawl sort of thing. Very kind of classic summer job, which people would do, which I, I didn't love necessarily. Kind of my first sales experience i suppose and i absolutely sucked at it just going up to random people on the street and being like hey you want to come to this bar crawl thing and yeah so that wasn't much fun but through that company a couple of years later they ended up offering me a bike tour role which was pretty interesting kind of the whole model was that i rented the bikes from the the promotion company themselves and then i would give them some kind of five euros per person and got paid only in tips So I would go to basically throughout this whole three hour tour, taking people all around the city, all the landmarks, delivering the spiel, kind of putting a little street theater kind of into it. And at the end of it, just kind of say, hey, I get paid in tips. So please just feel free to give whatever you like. Mm. And some of these Americans, you know, with a big tipping culture, sometimes I'd have groups of like 20 Americans at a time. And they'd give me like 40, 50 euros a person sort of thing. And... I mean, it was a good gig in the summertime. Obviously, it's not sustainable all year round, 
but during summit it was a lot of fun and i did that for a kind of really about a year year and a half and uh, did okay off it <laughs> for a while and that was a lot of fun you're talking about tipping culture yes so yeah. i've heard about the americans over tipping sometimes and how it's kind of part of the culture and you cannot just escape it but no. it's different in europe so how does that work in spain and how does it work in your country it's a kind of a similar i think most european countries have the same kind of attitude towards it which is like you leave a little bit sometimes after yeah. a meal or something like that but there's no standard like everyday transaction yeah. tip or everyday transaction kind of service cost if you guys have ever been in the states i remember going to a bookshop in washington dc and just buying a book and you see the price it's like ten dollars or something for this book and you get to the counter and they're like oh that's sixteen dollars and 29 cents and you're like what? And they're like, service cost, this tax, all this extra hidden on shit. I don't know, I feel like it's very disingenuous, the whole thing. But in Spain, it's kind of similar to here, just a little bit with a bit fancy meal. Are you sure about that? I mean, I would assume that your site job would not work the same in the Netherlands because, yeah, there are a lot of tourists, especially in summer, coming from all over the place, from the US as well. But as far as I know, tipping people here is not something you usually do. Yeah, the distinction, I suppose, is that the bike tour, the whole concept of it was that it was a free tour. So they show up to a tour and people get, oh, I'm getting a great deal. So when I really lay on the guilt at the end, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, that was kind of where, yeah. where it would come in. I'd really kind of get a little tear running down my cheek and say, you know, I'm struggling to pay rent, guys. So I suppose that was kind of the main differential factor there. And people are on holiday, but yeah, otherwise kind of, you know, Spain, it's not, it's not a big tip in culture either. All right. Yeah. What other activities have you been doing back in Spain? So I worked, you know, a variety of sales jobs. I worked for a company that kind of sold, I suppose, timeshare, this kind of scummy kind of holiday resort thing to people in the UK. That was not a lot of fun and I'd not like to dwell on it too much, to be honest with you. But you I did it for a while. like a person who can attract people on the vacation. You know, I'm wearing a kind of a floral shirt at the minute. So, you know, quite Hawaiian-esque. But okay. this was all over the phone. Unfortunately, there was no face-to-face -face element of it. So they couldn't see my, my garments during that. It was And it was pre-Zoom days, I suppose. So, yeah, I worked as well as a sales agent for HP for a long time, which was, I don't know, kind of my first real legit sales job which the was, computer company the computer company yeah indeed Sorry. i sold printers you know a thriving sector if there ever was one right and printers definitely not a guy yeah yeah so did you experience any troubles in terms of not having a high education like not having a bachelor degree that's uh, a good question but mm. yeah I would say that not necessarily in Spain, it wasn't really too much of an issue. I mean, obviously it's quite commonplace in Spain as well to go to university, but I would say maybe the levels of people who just have a high school education are maybe higher than here. Spain's not as wealthy a country as the UK or Netherlands or something like that. So yeah, I would say it was less of a problem there than it is here. Applying a lot of the time when you apply for jobs, it's kind of like mandatory. Bachelor's, masters. Yeah, just in anything, you know, it could be a bloody witchcraft or something, you know, completely yeah. nonsensical or something like that. No. Have masters in witchcraft. Yeah, you know, no offense to the witches <laughs> out there. No, I mean, I think you should have a PhD. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, we all are looking for the proper jobs still. I have some side gigs going on, but still need to secure our visas. And one of our main focuses in our podcast is actually a kind of a job hunt related topic. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's pretty much interesting the differences between the countries uh, in terms of like having or not having obligatory higher education. 
because on LinkedIn in the Netherlands, yeah, I think we all just bump into yeah, 95% of the required bachelor masters. And not only that, for example, you have the appropriate skills, you have appropriate experience, but you don't have a degree in stamps, for mm. example, mm. It's like like technical stuff. So yeah, it's also not very inclusive, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but on the other hand, you have a lot of work experience, like hands-on experience, yeah. kind of like theoretical stuff. Whereas me, on the other hand, I have the degrees, but I don't have the experience, which also not ideal. Yeah, it's definitely helped helped out uh, quite a bit in terms of job hunt over here. Having said, I've got three, four years in sales experience coming over to here. And so as much as at the time, you, you really think that it's everything is have a university degree when applying for jobs at the end of the day, especially in the sales sales field, it's really about showing motivation or experience or kind of having this drive. If you can go to an interview and you're talking about sales and talk about your past achievements and you mm-hmm. can just basically be like, Hey, listen, I'm going to just be the guy. I'm just going to do everything that you could ever want. Sell it to them a little bit. Then that's kind of all you need, really. But yeah, I would say kind of, yeah, it, it does depend on the mm-hmm. field that you're going into. I assume something like urban design or architecture is a little bit more, more degree dependent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, whereas sales, on the other hand, I think it's more of a talent rather than a skill. You can have all the courses and degrees in the world but if you cannot sell and you don't know how to persuade people you cannot do the job yeah Yeah, i mean i could tell that laurie is a very good salesman because his co-workers were chatting behind his back oh yeah actually just a couple of days ago when we were on the race yeah we're gonna come back to that but yeah when we were waiting for you and you told us like i'm around the corner and you were very um, kind of persuasive telling us that you will be there in a second we were waiting for you. I think Roger told us, never trust a salesperson. Oh, I, think, I think that's a very fair uh, thing to, yeah. The old sales saying is, uh, you don't bullshit a bullshitter. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Talking uh, about your industry or line of business. So you mostly worked in event management, hospitality slash sales. So traditionally when I was working and be kind of at HP in Boston, I was had this kind of technical sales yeah. background, uh, that sort of thing. When I first moved over to the Netherlands, I started working for a company not too far away from here called i3z.net. Yeah. So smart DC. Who are the, the one at the next to the Nello factory? Yeah, 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 indeed. So they're a really well established hosting service. Basically, they sell data center, server racks and data centers, things like that. And kind of low latency gaming connection kind of thing. But yeah, very much selling physical hardware again, selling servers and that kind of thing. So that was more of a technical experience. I, you know, my HP experience meant that I could work there and get on all right. But honestly, the fact that everybody kind of you're speaking to there is very of a technical background. They all live in their mum's basement. They've all got long neck beards and stuff like that. And they all just want to check you the whole time and kind of like, oh, do you really know what kind of uh, the model this is? How many fans has this kind of got? You know what I mean? So not exactly the most people friendly. I don't know. I got a little bit kind of disenfranchised. I wasn't loving this sector so much. I wasn't naturally so interested in it. So yeah, I started looking for something else and, you know, I found this opportunity because I'm uh, quite interested in environmental stuff like that, just, you know, loosely, while I'm not the greatest student of it, it isn't born to me. So I saw this opportunity. I thought it was, was a fantastic thing to get involved in. And I just knew that kind of working in events as well, you're going to speak to people who are a little bit more social. People I speak to now are kind of more like marketing types, people who actually know how to have a conversation mm-hmm. to really pretend to be interested in what you have to say. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I, it's a new thing for me. 
Yeah. If you could list like three main key, I don't know, requirements or maybe key skills that you have to bring to every job mm. in tech sales or just general sales, what would that be? Yeah, I think obviously the big one is motivation. I mean, in sales, it's, it sounds quite cliche, but it's a bit of a roller coaster. You know, you'll have great months, you'll have less than stellar months, you'll have ups and downs with it. So it's just about kind of keeping your head down and being not letting the shit months get you down, not letting people get grind you down the wrong way. You spend two months working on a deal and it falls through. Sometimes it's just going to happen. That's just the nature of it. So I would say motivation's a big one. Number two is actually believing in what you're selling as well, which is why I struggled a little bit in the tech sales side of things because I wasn't really that interested in it. I didn't really think that much about it. Mm -hmm. While now I'm kind of working in a field which I feel is actually doing something positive. It's something interesting and exciting and very relevant considering kind of current times. So I think actually having an inherent interest in what you're doing is just a great key to be successful in sales. And lastly, I don't know, not taking it too seriously at the end of the day, kind of being a light attitude towards it as well. Obviously, you can believe in what you're doing, you can be motivated, but you've got to be easy going with it all as well. Just don't get too stressed out by it. Just you have to kind of take it bit by bit. Cool. Yeah, I'm sorry to ask, but how you ended up at House Bizarre? Oh yeah, so that was... <laughs> Wait, before before that, yeah, yeah. just tell us the transition between Spain and the Netherlands. That yeah. was literally, it ties in very well to this. Yeah. So, you know, I, I decided to move over from Spain with my girlfriend at the time because, you know, she wasn't getting paid the best. She was working as a front-end developer and was like, hey, listen, in the Netherlands, I can get paid basically three times yeah. what yeah. I'm getting paid. So obviously the sort of minimum wage sort of stuff in Spain isn't great and uh, the wages aren't fantastic. So we decided to try something a little bit new. And when I first came over here, the fact that bloody speaking English isn't so much a commodity as it is in Spain, you know, speaking mm -hmm. right. English with the standard that everybody speaks here. And as you were saying as well, everybody's kind of got a higher education. It's kind of necessary. So when I first got over here, I was like, what am I going to do? Looking around for a job for a little bit and wasn't too successful at first. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the Orange called me. I was the, the, the boys in Orange, the face resort, the, the, the our international audience. It's the Just Eat, I believe, is the equivalent kind of a board, but they call it a face resort here. So, yeah, working bike delivery stuff for, I think, was kind of six or seven months overall. It, you know what? It, I started at a sales job here and I just wasn't really enjoying it at all. It was head down, you hit this number of dollars a day. So I was like, I can get paid better just going on a bike and hanging around the city center and zooming around on those electric bikes. So, you know what? I really enjoyed my experience there overall. As much as you get better pay, it's nice to just be able to work with your headphones in, listening to the music you want, not necessarily having somebody on your ass looking over the shoulder the whole time you know what i mean mm -hmm. like no kind of micromanaging you just do five hours a day zip around the city a little bit and make some all right tips as well talking about tipping culture as well mm -hmm. some people give you some some nice little things because just as i started doing it we kind of got into the pandemic a little bit well full on like in the kind of the first main <laughs> lockdowns that. so people were like throwing 10 euros per delivery at me and stuff like that and people would clap at you and things yeah. <laughs> like that i was like yeah. wow yeah, their only interaction with the outer world back in the day yeah yeah really grannies wanted to chat with me and i just kind of like to chat away to me in dutch <laughs> and i'm just nodding my head going yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. so it was a really interesting experience honestly and then yeah as i say you know during that kind of time i was looking around for jobs and that whole thing but I would recommend it kind of as a transition job because they're always looking for people. It's I think the pay has gone up as well considerably after the pandemic. It's not a minimum wage job. 
Yeah, and you can get to know the city quite well oh. just by cycling around. I think you know every street, yeah. every corner yeah. of the street. Honestly, kind of all over the city as well now. I picked up on a few tricks and tips as well, like certain spots where you can go with your bike and you wouldn't get the job. So you just sit there <laughs> and listen to your music. You go for an hour and nobody gives you a thing. But you speak to guys and you get tips about these kind of like black spots where you can just go and nobody's going to pick up on you kind of thing. So can you tell that thanks to the Thaus Bizarre you became a big fan of music and started your own band. I, you know, I would love to give all the credit to those people, but unfortunately <laughs> the seeds were planted a, quite a while before then. But, you know, I had a lot of time to listen to music and a lot of stuff, but uh, I appreciate that transition. So, you know, it's a very smooth. <laughs> I played music in a band here with a friend who's also from Russia. And yeah, we've been doing it for, for a little while now and just kind of wickled one another. We, we put a couple of singles out over the last couple of months. And uh, we can expect our EP to go out on August 19th. Oh, nice. We're doing a show on the very same day. And I'm going to be very upset if I don't see all three of you there. August 19th, save the date. Okay. Yeah, and so that's going to be a lot of fun. It's our first show. I'm organizing it. Uh, so I've selected two local bands. One of them is my girlfriend's band, who are very cool, very fun. And yeah, another, another local band, Quincy and the David. So yeah, that's going to be fun. It's going to be in Utrecht at the DB studio. I don't know if you guys have ever been, but it's quite a nice little venue. So uh, yeah, save the date. Keep an eye out. Watch this yeah, space. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get there. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah, 100%. But sorry, I think I disrupted the storyline a little bit. No, uh, I like it. So the pandemic <laughs> happened. You chatting with Granius to listen to music on the benches. Yes. And yeah, like how you managed to get out of the um, delivery job? Or what yeah. was your next occupation? How yeah. did you transition into your current job, I guess? So as I say, during the delivery stuff, I kept on looking around for kind of tech sales jobs. And I eventually found that one i3d.net, which is kind of the, the server uh, hosting provider, which is not too far away from here. So the job market at that time as well was very competitive. I was really lucky because it was a quite, quite a funny story. I think there are like over a hundred applicants for the job and two of us made it through kind of a junior sales role in the first place. And I think a big part of why I got it as well, and this is a bit of advice as well in terms of like interviews and sales side of things. Yeah. In a sales interview, <laughs> just tell people that you love reading sales books. Self-improvement. Well, yeah, kind kind of, but there's a couple of specific ones you have to look out for. And there's one which I was made to read a couple of times when I was working for HP. And it's this kind of ancient tome from the 80s called the spin system spin selling hmm. and it's a very clever acronym do i remember what it actually stands for now yeah the situation anyway it's an acronym for something so just and the name of the book will be sufficient to implant the honestly it, that it was exactly that because i had the sales manager in the interview with me and he was like do you ever read sales books at all and i said yeah spin selling and he turned to the guy next to him with a smile on his face and he goes I tell these guys all the time they should be reading this. Yeah. This is it. And he pulled it out from his bag. He pulled out a copy of the book from his bag. And wow. he was like, just smiling. And I was like, I am a lucky bastard. I, mean, I am so smooth. I can't believe it. So yeah, I called me the next week and I got the offer, as I say, from 100 people. Were there people who were infinitely more qualified for it? Yeah, but because I knew the name of this goddamn shitty book, which isn't even that good, it really helped me out. So yeah. So are you seeing 
knowing or like vibing with the interviewees would help a lot. Big time. I think, yeah, just kind of picking up a little bit on what kind of person, if you can tell that they're really into that sort of thing, then you just kind of got to lean into it a little bit more. As much as you, you know, you don't want to create a false impression of yourself. It's the same thing like going on a first date, right? You want to kind of get the best version of yourself out there, right? You want to, without trying too hard or making it too unnatural or sort of thing like that, you just got to be cool with it. And if someone's interested in something, pick up on that and, and, and run with it. So basically, we can say that your proper career in the Netherlands started thanks to this random book. I would say, yeah, thank you to the author's name, who I forget, and for writing it in the 80s. This random book has, has did me a lot of favors and really helped kind of take my sales career to the next step. And, you know, as much as I kind of didn't love the, the previous work I was doing, it was a good stepping stone to what I'm doing now, which I genuinely really enjoy and really like. Sorry, I have the question. Just, I don't know, maybe a bit theoretical, but... To what extent do you think being a native speaker, and especially from England, from UK, influenced your development in the sales industry? Do you consider that you had much bigger advantages from the beginning? It's curious because in the previous role I was working, I had to speak to kind of a lot of Dutch native speakers. So that was, as somebody who doesn't really speak any Dutch at all, I speak a little bit, but barely worth mentioning. Um, And they, yeah, kind of it. As much as kind of in the actual interview itself, you can kind of get away with a charm a little bit of the hamming up the Englishness. In the long run, it was a little bit of a hindrance because the people who I'm sure applied for a job who were native Dutch speakers who were speaking to Dutch clients and they go, why is some arsehole calling me from a Dutch number in my own country and speaking English to me and asking, you know what I mean? So, and it's a Dutch company. So, as, as multilingual as it is here yeah. and as the quality of English is, is great here, I think during the interview process, perhaps, yeah, but actually when it comes to the job itself, actually maybe a mixed bag, mixed bag yeah, 100%. The current, current job I'm doing, I speak with UK, Nordic, stuff like that. So, and uh, that's uh, that's really kind of when it's in, in Israel as well. So I get good reception to the Englishness there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that since then the Dutch requirements even became stricter in terms of the job hunt? I don't know. It's curious. I couldn't say necessarily so much. I mean, the the job role I'm, I'm doing currently did say that they were looking also for kind of a Spanish speaker as well. So the fact that I do speak Spanish, not to like a, an incredible degree, and I'm very out of practice, was a big factor. But I think there's kind of a lot of international jobs in the Netherlands. I'm sure quite a lot of companies would prefer native Dutch speakers. I think they're also quite realistic about the amount of expats, the amount of people here mm-hmm. who don't speaking Dutch. Yeah, maybe the LinkedIn algorithm went wrong with me, but just like every other job is uh, 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 yeah, asking my level of Dutch. And I think most of the applications, they even don't come through. But it was funny, actually, today I applied for a job. I wrote a motivation letter, of course, with the help of ChatGPT. <laughs> but I mean, I'm just, I just got tired. I wrote like more than a hundred of them. So it's insane. Anyway, I applied for the job, whole complex CV, motivation letter. I think within 15 minutes, I got to reply, 99% of our clients are Dutch. <laughs> so, so, no, no, not a chance. It was not an automatic message. I think they have a copy paste, like, for the <laughs> application. Yeah. So, like, yeah, it's, uh, that's rough. As I say, there is quite a high standard. You're looking at the moment, you say, I remember you were telling me about an experience where you went for an interview and they were kind of speaking to you a little bit in Dutch and trying well, to. I, 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 your- I wasn't speaking that much. I just prepared some of the phrases. But for some reason, maybe I was just, I don't know, very motivated to understand what they're saying. So I actually understood what they said. I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Everything's okay. 
And then, then I politely asked them in Dutch, should I continue in English? They're like, yeah, for sure. Prima, prima Netherlands. Gesture is important, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, they, they value that stuff. But surprisingly, if you try to speak with them in Dutch and you're not that good in it, I mean, 99% chances they're going to switch to English. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. Because why wasting time, right? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the pay gap between your partner and yourself because the assumption is that if that person works in a tech industry the chances are that they're making very good money yeah, yeah that was 100% the case you know me on, wearing the orange on the, on the face yeah yeah so, so basically just compare tech industry to the delivery <laughs> exactly genuinely though it is an interesting question because it's these jobs are in such high demand and so much so that they kind of even paid for a relocation package for us to come over here so they basically help us out they had a, a housing agent get us set up with a, with a place actually not too far from here where I first originally moved over in Prince Alexander in Rotterdam. Obviously, it was a very real thing. Even when I got my first real job here, massive pay discrepancy. And I, I know her kind of job she was doing was only a junior role as well. And mm-hmm. even with that, while I was junior to media kind of level, there was still a massive discrepancy. Do you think you would even move to the Netherlands like that without being in a re- relationship with a person from the tech industry? <laughs> I mean, just would you risk moving after Spain to the Netherlands and just starting on your own moving as a delivery guy? That's a good question. I wouldn't have been able to fund the move or fund kind of living just purely off a delivery wage for myself. So I was definitely blessed to be kind of with a partner at that time. Right. But... Overall, yeah, I was kind of getting five years in some ways, quite a long time. Rolling Stone gathers no moss and all that. You want to switch it up a little bit, change of scenes. I'd been to the Netherlands once before, kind of in February, actually, down in Maastricht to go see my friend who was studying there. And I was really impressed by it. I thought it was super beautiful, especially in kind of the winter time as well. Blankets out on the chairs and the bars and stuff like that. And all that. Yeah, they're great, as they say. Uh, So I was very impressed by the Netherlands. And kind of when I was, you know, maybe I could, could live there someday. I wouldn't necessarily go in blind to living in the Netherlands. If you wanted to move there, come with a job offer just because the cost of living, kind of, no matter if you're in the big city, if you're in Amsterdam or in, in Rotterdam or one of the kind of the smaller cities, it's still costly compared to some other places. And did you move to the Netherlands before Brexit or after? I actually moved after it'd been finalized. So it was in 2016 that the actual boat was mm-hmm. done. But of course, it was a very chaotic process. Who would have guessed, right? It was harebrained and there was all these different types of Brexit, soft, the hard Brexit that was being discussed. I think it was kind of when things came into effect, it was actually either late 2019 or tw- early 2020. Mum mm-hmm. would kill me for not knowing this exactly. But uh, when I had moved over here, kind of the process was actually really simple to stay in the Netherlands because basically I just had to show that I was employed, I had a contract, a job offer and stuff like that. They just gave me residency basically and said, you know, you can just stay here as long as you have a kind of a working contract, stuff like that. I think even if I don't as well, it's also fine now. Yeah, but after the Brexit, you maybe now understand better what it's like for the people outside of EU to come here. Yeah, if you're not coming here for study and you don't have a student visa or party visa, a uh, startup visa. A startup yeah, visa, the thousand resort won't even hire you because, no. yeah, 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 yeah another chance, so. Yeah, uh, it's, it's tough. It's definitely a sobering thought now to think that I just 
another 18 year old like me in the same situation couldn't just be like hey i'm just gonna go try out some other random european mm. city now it has to be an official thing it has to be a lot more rigorous process and yeah as i say i, I really hate it it's not ideal in fact my dad is actually just got his irish passport finally great grandma was irish or something like that but he managed to claim it so that now he can continue being an eu citizen which oh, is a uh, which is grand lucky for him yeah yeah i can't claim it unfortunately you know that's the but, uh, yeah it's un un unfortunate <laughs> but uh, i appreciate the irish terminology used that's uh, such a yeah there we go got any more <laughs> um, yeah so good for him really happy for him because he's actually pro owns property in spain so he's in this weird situation where he would have to basically spend three months in the own house that he owns and then he would have to leave the country for three months to go live somewhere else during that time and then go on this rotation kind of thing so very weird very bizarre but hey it's all at an end now <clears throat> yeah it's handy to have a eu passport yeah. most definitely most definitely you guys want to marry any yeah if somebody somebody can provide me with maria yeah, we have an um, email Wow. Oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Maybe just, just, just send me proposal. And I can marry easily. Okay. Yeah, I'm a very fit person. Larry can tell. I, I can tell that. Yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of which, for fit people and everything, I can tell that your calves improved. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So talking of a transition to this guy. That's what I mean. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. What is happening? What happened? You started doing some activities? Yeah, well, I mean, I think what you're getting at is that you and I two days ago but took took part in a very prestigious event which has been running for a couple of years now, organized by Cycling for Climate called the Climate Classic. It's a really interesting kind of sportive event which happens annually. There's three different lengths that you can do. It can be either 125, 250, or 375. It's a purely cycling event. Purely cycling event, and it kind of runs along a theoretical coastline of the Netherlands should, you know, sea levels continue to rise and sort of continue to go through kind of climate change as we are now, and it accelerates. So really fun event. I had a great time doing it. First time doing something like this. I think Sergey was like, just kind of, when we got to the end, he was like, just getting warmed up. You know what I mean? This guy's bloody John, Johnny, Johnny bicycles over here. You know what I mean? It was, uh, cycles a lot. So yeah, I, I had a lot of fun doing it. How about you? How, what was your experience of it? I enjoyed it. I mean, it was not even a race for me. It was just, yeah, it's a nice ride. I had a few breaks uh, racing for you. I was happy. <laughs> I mean, come on! I was happy. I was happy to share a co 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 coffee gel with you. Very much appreciated. Uh, no, I actually feel proud of you because, as I know, you don't have a big of a history with sports and with cycling. You just started doing it last time, and actually, it was the first time we came on a ride. I can tell from your scarf, which is still still fresh, oh still there. Yeah, you just you just fell on the on the ground. It was a bit hilarious. It's so quite funny. No, I, I laughed. Fun. I was laughing about it too. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but I didn't well, eat shit. Like. For, our listen, for our listeners, wear a helmet if you're doing a like a sport bike thing. It's important. But uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it's a very good mission. It's very important to just raise awareness. And uh, even with the jerseys uh, which we all have now, it's written. It's made out of seven or eight plastic bottles, and uh, that's a very <clears throat> nice message to the people actually there were like a couple not very pleasant moments when car drivers were acting a bit aggressively they were passing quite close they were kind of showing them their point but mm, i think your colleagues also in the british slang told a few words but mm -hmm. i don't want to repeat them on our podcast yeah actually nice lads can i call them lads of i'm not sure i call them lads yeah yeah, yeah they're like twice older than me but I think I think certainly Paddy is. He's 55 here. I think he's in his mid 30s. But you know, 
Now, yesterday we all let, so... Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was a good atmosphere and everybody was very, very encouraging. And as you said, all three of you are far more experienced cyclists than I. And you were kind of very generous waiting around for me at certain points and hanging no, around. No, uh, no. So it was really nice to kind of have that. At a certain point, in about 80 kilometers, I started flagging a little bit because we really came in the first half. We, we pushed we pushed pretty hard in the first half, at least by my standards. Yeah. So yeah, for, for our cycling listeners, Laurie hit the wall. You know, for our non-cycling listeners <laughs> yeah. who might be confused, hitting the wall means hitting your limits and the kind of energy drop big yeah. time and kind of when you fall off. Cycling I mean, I kept on cycling. I didn't like ever really stop apart from just a couple of times to find the group or catch up to people and stuff like that but when we started going against the wind kind of about 80 to 80 to 90 kilometers really sucked you burned kind of around 2,000 calories at that point and you're starting to feel your energy levels drop a lot so uh, yeah that was tough part of it but these guys were generous enough to, to weigh up for me a little bit I caught up to them sergey gave me this the divine gift of a uh, caffeine gel which gave, gave me the shakes on the bike it really saved me though it gave me a kick up the ass which i much needed at that point and then uh, we started doing a similar pace at the end that we'd been doing at the start i didn't feel too destroyed by the end of it which was nice definitely would invest in some more padding on the bottom area you know on, mm -hmm. on, on, on the arse if i may but uh, yeah overall really fun experience i'd love to do it next year i'd love to invite sergey back to do it again next year with the company yeah, yeah hope i will be able to that seems like a cool event so and after hearing your stories it seems like you don't afraid to try new things in yeah. general yeah life like new jobs new countries new girlfriends <laughs> i hope they're not uh, involved in drugs no <laughs> certainly not certainly not i think, it's, I think it's assessment yeah in your 20s it's it's super important so have you guys been to any music festivals here oh, in the netherlands not before? Yet. we've been together with Laura. it was fun unfortunately only for one day i was able to go there next day i was on the music festival in belgium the guess who in, in Utrecht. Yeah, because... very, very good one. The music venues, the music kind of events in the Netherlands, in my perspective, are one of the best, one of the most innovative in you Europe. You just have to get the tickets. Yeah, that's a really hassle, but ticket swap, always here to help. Yeah, yeah. indeed. I mean, talking about cycling, being professional at that, this guy, Sergei, is like professional mountain goat. My level of cycling is super Dutch. I just carry huge things on my bike. And uh, yeah, what's the biggest object you carry it on your bikes? It's, you know, it's an interesting question because, as I said, I'm currently in the middle of moving a bunch of stuff. I've been using those cargo roo, the cargo bikes recently, yeah. and I've been taking loads of shit, really pushing it to the limit. So yesterday I had my guitar amp, a couple of boxes, a Stellingcast, like a storage unit as well, like shelves, like on the bike. And it's like uh -huh. so wide, a meter wide or something. And I'm nearly knocking people off as I'm cycling. You're using the cargo bike. Or? I'm using the cargo yeah. bike. Yeah. So actually on my bike itself, I don't know, maybe me, the heaviest thing I've carried, but you know, it's yeah. about you guys. On my city bike, I carried Rocket, our friend of ours. <laughs> friend of ours. Okay. Uh, Another so, adult. Okay. Yeah, plenty of times, but yeah, not like a big object, actually. Yeah, I see. Yeah, I carried some Sergei's stuff, his old <laughs> and, apartment. And Sergei as well, I guess. And Sergei as well. Yeah, we all carry each other on our bikes, up the bar crawls. So supportive. But uh, yeah, we touched upon so many topics. I don't know, guys, do we maybe have any additional questions? Or Laurie, uh, you have additional comments after that? 
I would say, you know, that's, that's my entire existence. So uh, yeah, I think we've covered it all. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. It's been a lot of fun. And this your childhood traumas, for instance. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe part two. Uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit down down the road. This really is a therapy session, huh? But no, thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate you having. Best of luck with the podcast. It's been good so far. Thank and, you so uh, much. Yeah. Thank best, you. Best of luck with your bands and all your shenanigans. And, it's uh, 19th. Come. New tracks. Buy tickets. Um, yeah, it was such a pleasure of having you here. And let's wrap up, open my delivery and go to our friend's birthday. Rocket. An amazing Another transition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guys. Thank you all. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Bye. See you. Bye-bye.